0: Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thank you for
1: joining me today. Today is part three in our series, Scrutinizing Scripture. Can we believe our Bible? Last time in part two, imagine that, God published a book. We took a detailed look at how the Bible was compiled and organized, realizing that it's unique and therefore defendable. And though one important aspect of the Bible's uniqueness was its continuity from Genesis to Revelation, from the first book to the last. We even drew some parallels between the 66 books contained between the covers of the Bible and the compilation of Western classics known as Great Books of the Western World, containing selections from more than 450 works by some 100 authors spanning some 2,500 years. Friends, we came to realize the Bible, a compilation of works of over 40 authors spanning some 1,500 years on three continents and in three languages, in spite of its diverse subjects, amazingly presents a single, unified, unfolding story from Genesis to Revelation. In other words, although the Bible contains 66 individual books in its library, it demonstrates in its continuity that it is also one book, and that its 40-plus authors give glimpses of a single perspective, God's will and plan for fallen humanity. The Bible is not simply an anthology, but rather a unity that binds all its writings together. Friends, I'm sure that whatever local church you may be attending, they have a belief statement of some sort, either printed in the church bulletin, included in literature they provide, or present on their website. The church denomination I'm affiliated with has what's called an affirmation of faith. It opens with this statement, These biblical beliefs, briefly and simply stated, express our understanding of the Christian faith which we hold in common with other believers. Generally, a local church, whether an independent body or affiliated with a larger denomination, lists the beliefs they hold in common with the broader evangelical body of Christ. This can be anywhere from seven to ten common doctrinal statements. My denomination has nine primary summary statements, which I'd like to share. This way you'll also know my personal doctrinal convictions. 1. We believe in the one and only God, who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 2. We believe that all humans, male and female, were created by God in his image to be loved and known by him. We were made to glorify and enjoy God, but our relationship with him and our very nature has been broken by sin, which has made us all subject to God's judgment. 3. We believe that all of our world, physical and spiritual, visible and invisible, was created by God. We believe our world is also broken by sin and remains in corruption and rebellion and in need of God's redemption. for We believe that God's gift of his Son is the only and all-sufficient way we can be saved from the guilt, power, and eternal consequences of our sin – and restored to a full relationship with Him. We believe we receive this salvation only through our repentance and faith in the atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. 5. We believe that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for salvation because He is truly God's Son fully human and fully divine, or fully God. We believe Jesus' humanity and divinity are demonstrated through both his death and resurrection and his sinless and miraculous life. 6. We believe that the Holy Spirit will lead those who believe in the Lord Jesus into transformed lives. This radical and divinely empowered transformation happens as we come to see Jesus more clearly, know him more intimately, and follow him more closely. This life is marked by increasing conformity to Christ's goodness and holiness as we die to our sin and self-seeking. We believe this transformation is accomplished through obedience and self-denial by the believer, and empowerment and cleansing by the Holy Spirit. 7. We believe in one universal church, which is made up of all who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ and who seek to serve, love, and obey him. Eight, we believe that human history will come to an end when Jesus returns and this world is redeemed through the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. We believe that all will be raised from the dead and saved to eternal life with God and the lost to God's eternal condemnation. We believe the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, is the inspired and authoritative written word of God. We believe the Bible is entirely trustworthy in all that it teaches and reveals, that we are obligated to obey its teachings, and that all of our doctrines and practices are subject to its authority. Friends, nowadays, statements like these represent a dangerous document, especially in light of the age of tolerance in which we now live. In other words, our age of relativism. The average non-religious person, skeptic, agnostic, or even atheist, could easily retort, Whoa, that's pretty intolerant, isn't it? Or to use a phrase many critics like to use, That's pretty narrow-minded. I remember some time ago when I was out on a pastoral call. I happened to notice a vehicle in front of me, but in the next lane over and a little ways ahead of me with a bumper sticker that had the word God on it. Naturally, it piqued my interest, so I sped up a bit to see if I could catch up to the vehicle. And I did. Friends, you know what the bumper sticker said? God is too big to fit into just one religion. In his book, More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell asked a great question. Why is it that you can talk about God and nobody gets upset, but as soon as you mention Jesus, people so often want to stop the conversation or they become defensive? Chuck Colson once made a startling discovery, one that became a rude awakening for him. Due to his former involvement in the Watergate scandal, he became nationally known. His name became a household word. Well, after he accepted Jesus as his personal savior, the media began following him around. Coulson was immediately blunt about his newfound faith and deliberately explained to them he had accepted Jesus Christ. He later said, I discovered that one major U.S. daily paper as a matter of policy, will not print the two words Jesus Christ together. When combined, the editor said, it represents an editorial judgment. In other words, Colson learned that it represented one person's personal opinion rather than an objective truth. Well, so much for unbiased journalism. Well, friends, in our present series, we've been taking a hard look at this book of books, the Bible, if you will, and why its claims are worth defending. So today, part three is the book of books reveals the Savior of saviors. And I'd like us to take a look at some proactive statements, some provocative statements made in both the Old and New Testaments. These, I believe, will illuminate just why we can talk about God and nobody gets upset. But as soon as we mention Jesus, people naturally get defensive. Friends, I'm going to begin with Psalm 49, 1 through 15, but my focus will be verses 7 through 9. The opening verses provide the context. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all you who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. Notice, no distinction between social or economic status here. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the harp I'll expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? Here's the clincher, friends, verses 7 through 9. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. Another way this first part can be worded is, no man can by any means redeem his brother the ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. In other words, we could live to our dying day and still not be able to redeem one fellow human being. The psalm continues, for all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish. And let me just say here, friends, we got to be careful about how we understand the word foolish. A biblical fool is not what we think. Rather, a biblical fool is a moral rebel, one who rebels against the moral laws of God. The text continues. The foolish and the senseless perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They're like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life or my soul from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Now, friends, there's a parallel passage, much shorter, that crops up in Psalm 146, 3-6. through six. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them the Lord who remains faithful forever. Notice how the Bible writers take certain words and their accompanying concepts very seriously. Words like redemption, ransom, words that have a direct tie into the concept of salvation and forgiveness of sin. As we've been discussing there's a unifying thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation, a thread that ties these concepts together. Just listen to what is said about the Lord God by the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 43:10 through 13 say, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act, Who can reverse it? How about Isaiah 44, 6-9? This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God, who then is like me, Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one or isaiah fifty forty five twenty two through twenty four turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other by myself. I have sworn, my mouth has uttered it all in in integrity, a word that will not be revoked before me, every knee will bow. And by me, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, our deliverance or salvation and strength. Friends, you know, you know the reason that people can freely talk about God these days and not get upset. It's because God can be discussed in a generic sense. Each person attaching whatever meaning she or he wants to the concept of God. But throw in the two words, Jesus Christ, and whoa, that represents an editorial judgment. In those simple yet profound two words is a concept of humanity and divinity wrapped up in one person, one man, and only one man, the man Jesus of Nazareth, the man Jesus Christ Christ. Friends, I remember my Bible college days when I first learned the phrase, the scandal of particularity. You see, from a theological point of view, the Christmas story, in other words, the incarnation is referred to as the scandal of particularity. That little phrase stands for a paragraph of information. And here it is. It's a scandal to the human mind that God would choose to manifest himself at one particular time in history and in only one particular person, the person Jesus Christ i find it interesting and i hope you do too that scriptures we tend to limit to reading during christmas time certainly bear repeating particularly when they relate to understanding the nature person and work of jesus christ for instance matthew 1 20-23 this is the angel speaking to joseph joseph son of david Friends, when reading these incredible texts, we almost always roll over them like a steamroller and don't think twice about what is being said here. We have presented here two names, Jesus and Emmanuel, two incredible names with two incredible meanings. Now, it's pretty cool that the angel defines Jesus' name for us and why it was chosen, our English word Jesus is actually the word Yeshua in Hebrew the yeh prefix is actually a poetic short form for god's name yahweh or yah and the shua part of the name means save but includes deliver rescue liberate and so friends the name Jesus means god saves And the angel elaborates on this saving action, doesn't he? Jesus will be God saving his people from their sins. Now we come to that incredible name, Emmanuel. The Greek version begins with an I, which camouflages the meaning a little. The Hebrew word begins with an E, Emmanuel. And curiously, the Hebrew name is actually two words the word Emanu and the word El. Is this starting to materialize for you yet? I'm sure that some of you listening are familiar with the names of God throughout the Old Testament. And if you do, you know that there are L words for God, actually compound words like El Shaddai, God Almighty, or El Elion, God Most High, etc. There's a handful of these very descriptive compound names for God, but notice the L prefix is always first. But only one name in all of scripture has the L part last. That's Emmanuel. Isn't that cool? friends i've wondered about this why this is so that only this one name in all of scripture has l at the end want to know what i came up with well matthew tells us that emmanuel means god with us right and that's certainly true i won't ever deny that but what happens if we take the name in its literal sense with us is god I have a sneaky suspicion that the intent of this form of the name, Emmanuel, was to emphasize the with us part, since it comes first in the name, Emmanuel. Well, friends, let's just refresh ourselves of a few Bible verses that we're most likely very familiar with, like matthew twenty eight twenty the tail end of Jesus' great commission that concludes matthew's gospel and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. How about John fourteen eighteen here in the midst of Jesus' predicting the coming of the Holy Spirit, he tells his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Or even John 1, one, where we get our word incarnation, meaning becoming or taking on flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We could even say the word became flesh and began living with us. Hey, let's be honest for a moment, okay? When we're going through tough times, challenging times, what's the first thing we tend to shout out to God? Hey, God, where are you? I don't feel you near me. It's as if we're saying, God, aren't you with me? That's why I'm convinced, friends, that Jesus's name, Emmanuel, is designed to remind us that first and foremost, with us, is God through Jesus, now through the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is why I'm also convinced that when Jesus comes on the scene in the first century Greco-Roman world, he creates an immediate stir among the presiding Jewish religious leaders. Who were the religious control freaks over the Jewish religious system? And so, the disciples were among the first to acknowledge who Jesus actually was. In Matthew 16, 13-16, in response to Jesus' question, Who do people say that I am? Peter replies, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And conversely, the Jewish religious leaders were among the first to reject who Jesus claimed to be. In John five sixteen through 18 we find their response to Jesus recorded by John. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In Luke 2:11 we have another key text that's been relegated to Christmas time readings only Shame on us the angel said to the shepherds Today in the town of David a savior has been born to you He is the Messiah the Lord Now, let's hear this with first-century ears, the way it was intended to be heard by both Gentile and Jewish people. A Savior has been born to you, Moshiach Yahweh, or Messiah God. You see, friends, the first-century question remains the 21st-century question. Who do people say Jesus is remains the key question of every generation since a few sessions ago we asked the ultimate question what is truth today we're asking the pivotal question who is jesus friends in light of jesus claiming to be god either his claims were false or they were true if his claims were false we have two alternatives he knew they were false or he didn't know they were false. If he knew they were false, he becomes an imposter, a liar, a hypocrite, even a fool, for he died for what he knew was untrue. If Jesus didn't know his claims were false, then he was deluded and a lunatic. But if his claims were true, we're forced to conclude he is Savior and Lord, then there's only two alternatives accept or reject him amen amen well friends we're at the end of today's program our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me i'd love to hear your questions or comments and if a word from the word has blessed you or illuminated god's word please consider becoming a support team member Listeners like you keep this program on the air. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word.
0: Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.